There is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace When he takes me by the hand And leads me through the promised land What a day, glorious day that will be There'll be no sorrow there No more burdens to bear No more sin no pain, no more parting over there, and forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. That's a great song, isn't it? And that's a good one right there. Well, take your Bible tonight. Turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight. Again, we're in our Secrets of Successful Living series. And tonight we're going to talk about making it our ambition to please Him. And again, it's important, obviously, if we're going to have a successful Christian life, uh, we certainly need to have an ambition to please Him. And so we're going to take a look at that here and just consider a couple of thoughts along the way. But Second Corinthians chapter 5, and um, let's begin here in verse 9. The Bible just simply says this, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. That's a pretty good passage, isn't it? It goes on to say in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, interestingly enough, when we have this passage, like many others in the scriptures, as well as just uh, in general, we, we have something that we're to do. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. 
Well, then there's almost like a, a you know, well, why is that? What, why is there such an emphasis on this? What's the importance and the significance of this particular situation? Well, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so in the end, he's also saying, not only is it right to do this, not only should this be a goal of ours, an ambition of ours, but there's good reason for it. Now, I do think that it's important that as youngsters grow up, that they learn to obey without question. I'm not of the persuasion that a child always needs an answer. I don't believe that. I do believe as they get older, I think it's important that we, uh, they understand uh, uh, what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to do, and so forth. And we may give them some uh, explanation from time to time, because rules without reason equal rebellion. We get all of that. But the fact is, is that sometimes we just have to obey for the sake of obedience. Now, in this case, the Bible's telling us that, you know what, I'm not only going to tell you what's important and what we ought to be doing, but I'm going to tell you why. And so I appreciate that. I do think that sometimes, you know, we have to provide those answers. And in the Christian life, especially with newborns in Christ, uh, we need to tell them, this is what you're going to do, or this is what God requires of us. But let me tell you why he does. I think that's important because we're not dealing with with two-year-olds and three-year-olds intellectually. We're dealing with adults normally or teenagers, somebody that's a little older, and they need to understand things. Now, I'm of the persuasion, and, and this is a little different, Well, I'm not even going to go there. But nonetheless, I just want you to realize that it's important as we go forward, whether we're training our converts or even as our children begin to grow older, it's important that we give them, like God does, sometimes we give them reasons for our rules. They need to understand why we expect what we expect. Now, again, there are times that's not necessary. Uh, But I do think many times God tells us, this is what I expect of you. It's what I want of you and demand of you even. Here's why. Here's why. I want you to understand what's going to transpire and take place and see how significant, how important it is that you follow and obey. Now, this is one of those times I see in verse 9, wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Why, Paul? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So as we consider our secrets to successful living or of successful living, We're going to talk about making it our ambition to please Him. Now, the constant aim of everyone who really knows the Lord should be uh, to please the Lord well. Um, In John chapter 8, verse 29, the Bible says, And He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, when He was on this this, uh, earth, He made it a point to say, you know what, my great desire, my ambition is to please my Father. And if that is something that was important to the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be important to us, right? It makes sense to me that it should. In John chapter 13, verse 16, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Again, he's putting things in perspective. And we uh, look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and if there was an ambition or if there was a desire in his heart, it was to fulfill the will of his Father. That ought to be our desire, our great ambition. I wonder if anybody in the world, I wonder if anybody anywhere in the world could have a greater ambition than that. I wonder if anybody in the entire world could have a 
a greater ambition than to please him. I wonder, what would it be? What would ambition would be better for us as believers, better for the world in which we live, better for our children, better for our families, than to make it our ambition to please him? Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. I like to emphasize that last phrase. And for Thy pleasure they are and were created. See, as a matter of fact, according to the passage, we're told that pleasing God should be our greatest ambition because that is the reason we were created. Someone says, well, what's my purpose for living? Simple, to please him. It's not complicated. It's really easy. And so the real question in our life is, are we fulfilling our purpose? You say, well, how do I know that? Are you pleasing him? You say, well, I'm pleasing him. By whose standard, yours or his? And that's important too. By the way, it's interesting, isn't it? One of the great questions that we're asked constantly when we knock on doors is, okay, how's come, if your guys are the right, how's come there's so many other religions? You ever get questions like that? Well, how's come there's so many other religions? How's come there's so many other denominations, and yet you claim that you guys have the way? How's come there's so many others? What makes yours right? What would your answer be? Good question, right? It's not really a complicated response that's needed. It's really simple. Well, we believe that the Word of God is just that, the Word of God. It's our sole authority for faith and practice. What He says is all that really matters. And so it doesn't matter what my opinion is. It doesn't matter what I believe myself. It doesn't matter where I stand on a subject. All that matters is where He stands. And here's what the Bible says. Well, when it comes to pleasing God, many times if we're not careful, we have our standard. But it's not rooted, nor is it based in the Word of God. It's based in our own experience or upbringing, or possibly in the examples of others around us. And we may be so desperate to please God in our own minds that we even look to other people and say, well, I'm better than them, and I do more than they do, and I'm... So we have to be kind of careful with that. I wonder, is your ambition to please him? This is undoubtedly the secret of successful living. It is that simple. It is the secret of successful living. When we consider this series, Secrets of Successful Living... I guess we could, kind of like the Lord Jesus Christ did with the Ten Commandments, we could kind of compile all those commands, or all of these, in this case, secrets, and we could place them really under the umbrella of this one. Then when it's all said and done, this one encompasses all the rest. Remember when he talked about the, great, the commandments and he said, well, uh, this, uh, this is the first and great commandment and the second is like. And he gave those two and they kind of were an umbrella of all the rest. They kind of included everything else, kind of summarized the whole. This is what this particular passage does for us. This is what 
this particular lesson does. Making it our ambition to please him is really kind of puts an umbrella over the whole series and says anything and everything that we share from the time we started to the time we end fits under this one right here. So there is nothing greater than living day by day a life which is well-pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. I want you to think about Enoch for a moment. Turn to Genesis chapter 5, verse 22. Enoch for just a moment. What a tremendous character in the Word of God. Yeah, I mean, he was an amazing man. He had a short life. Well, compared to those living around him in those days. 300 years, but that was short in those days. Anybody remember how old Methuselah was? Yeah, how long? Uh, uh. Go ahead, Susan. 969 years, that's right. 969 years old when he passed away. Yeah. <laughs> Enoch was just a kid. He's a youngster. He was 300 when he leaves this earth. But notice this situation here. Isn't this something? Actually, he wasn't a youngster. He was 300. The Bible says in the millennium, 100 will be as youth. So anyway, moving on. Genesis 5.22, verses 20 through 24. Notice it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. And begot sons and daughters... And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. Wow, I was off by 65. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, this guy walked with God. Now I think it's interesting, the phraseology there. I think it's interesting to note that he walked with God. God didn't walk with him. I know that may not seem big, but just, just based on how it's read, and we may be able to go somewhere and say, yeah, you know, make sure God's walking with you. Well, the truth is, though, is I think we need to get on his schedule. We need to get on, in his game plan, and we need to be walking with him in that regard. But notice he walked with God. And then we find in Hebrews eleven five. 5, turn there, because this is really good. Again, Enoch walked with God. And, and ultimately, the Bible says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Do you know that Enoch, he did not die like we died. He was translated. He is a picture of the, 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 the saint at the rapture that is translated, that's taken out before death. So if you want a picture of what it's going to be like as a believer coming to the end of uh, the church age, Christ returning in the clouds and calling us out, rapturing us, you look at Enoch. Now notice what it says here in Hebrews eleven five. 5. But by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Wow. That's amazing. So someone says, okay, he pleased God. How do I please God? Well, you walk with him. That's, that's the definition of pleasing God, walking with him. 
It's not complicated. Again, the Bible makes it clear what we need to do. In order. Now, what does that mean? Walk with God. Well, now we can get into a number of areas. We can go look to the New Testament. We can see what that means, kind of identify what kind of behavior that is, what kind of attitude that it suggests, all of those things. However, and simply put, someone says to you, well, how in the world are you supposed to please God? You walk with him. It's pretty simple. Most people today are bent upon pleasing themselves, aren't they? I mean, there have been men and women whose supreme ambition has been to please God. No doubt about that. But there are many people who are bent upon pleasing themselves. We think about Judges chapter 17, verse 6, when the Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That, that wasn't a group of people there that were pleasing God. They weren't walking with God. They were pleasing themselves. And then we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, even though that's a New Testament passage, it's dealing with the Old Testament. God's people. But with many of them, was, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So all you need to do is follow the, 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 the journeys of Israel and you watch how they responded to God and his word and his commands. And the Bible's telling us here in 1 Corinthians 10 that with many of them, God was not well pleased. Boy, that's sure a lot different message than it was with Enoch, wasn't it? He had that testimony that he pleased God. In this case, well, not, not too many of them please God at all. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 says that, that in those days, traitor, they'd be traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Well, that's not someone that's wanting to please God. But I'm glad that there are still those that are seeking to fulfill God's condition um, concerning this issue, that make it their life's ambition to please him. That's what God intends, and that's what he expects of us. So what are the conditions of a life that pleases God? That's, that's a good question. And we're going to kind of do our best to touch on some of those things. I mean, what are the, and, and what are the results of a life that pleases God? And we're going to look at those as well, but not today. But what are the conditions of a life that pleases God? And so let's go ahead and take a few moments and consider some of those conditions tonight. And we'll get through as many as we can. But I don't think there's more than about 27. No, I'm teasing. But no, we're going to narrow things down a little bit. We're going to try to make it, you know, work. Not necessarily in this one 10-minute space, <laughs> but we'll get it to work, okay? I can't believe how quickly the time's flying already. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together, and Lord, we thank you for your love and grace. You are good to us. We thank you for the privilege of prayer and to be able to come into your presence and to know you intimately and personally. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and help us to realize the gravity of the situation as we live life. May we live our lives in a way that pleases you. May we make it our greatest ambition to please you. 
We need you now. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, then, what are the conditions for pleasing God? Well, we must be born again. Someone says, well, yeah, we know that. I know you know it, but let's spend just a moment considering it. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Turn there, would you? Again, we're trying to learn the Bible a little bit and and dig in somewhat. You know, maybe you want to note some of the scriptures, go back and look at them here and there from time to time. That's good too. Um, But one of the conditions for pleasing God is you need to be born again. Now again, this is more important than you may imagine. I mean, here's the thing. I have been to funerals where Christians will say about loved ones that are lost, well, they were a good man. And and I think they'll be all right. Wait a second. You can't please God unless you're saved. You you can't think that being good in this world or doing some, some nice things for people is a condition that somehow honors God or pleases Him in, in any way. God is not happy when someone fails to receive and accept His Son, Jesus Christ. That does not please God in the least. Romans 8.8 8 says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now before you jump to conclusions, say, well, that's in Romans, so that's talking to believers. Yes, but hold on. We're going to see that the Bible addresses this issue a little bit. Every man and woman is by nature in the flesh. You need to understand that right off the bat. Every one of us, by nature, are in the flesh. And while we're in the flesh, the Bible says that we cannot, we cannot, we cannot please God. In John chapter 3, verse 5, we see Jesus. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There has to be a new birth. There has to be this, this, this change of, 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 of nature, if you will. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there has to be the the first and greatest need in a life, obviously, would be to be born again. If you're going to please God, you must trust and receive Christ as your Savior. Because the believer is characterized as being in the Spirit. Now, again, we were in Romans 8.8, and so I didn't have you turn to that last one because I want you to see verse 9 now. He says, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, verse 8, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So it appears to me, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, that prior to being saved, we are in the flesh. Therefore, we cannot please God. The moment we trust and receive Christ, the Bible says that we then are no longer in the flesh. Instead, we are in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit dwelleth in us. The first condition for pleasing God, then, is to be born again. I read somewhat of a cute little thing, but let me just read it. It says, after the dedication of his baby brother in church, little Johnny sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car. His father asked him three times, what's wrong, Johnny? Come on, Johnny, what's wrong? Johnny, what's wrong? Finally, the boy replied, and he said, that pastor said he wanted us to... One of us brought up in a Christian home. And, and I want to stay with you guys. 
Now, now you know, that is kind of a humorous little story. But let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a problem, isn't it? I mean, honestly, we ought to, yes, we need to be born again, but isn't it important that we look and act like Christians? I think that's important. I think little Johnny was struggling. He didn't see much of that in his house. But nonetheless, we need to, first of all, be born again. We need to be Christians. We've got to be saved. If you're going to please the Lord, you've got, you must be born again. Then number two, we must separate ourselves from all sinful and doubtful things. If we're really going to please the Lord, if we're really going to please God, then we, we must separate ourselves from all sinful and doubtful things. So when we're born again, we become children of God. That's what the Bible says. Turn now to 1 John 3, 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Again, the, the first thing is we need to become children of God. And in 1 John 3, 1, the Bible says, Behold... What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, I want you to stop there and think about that phrase for a moment. What a powerful statement that is. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Now, think about that. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. How, how lightly we take that. Oh, yeah, well, what's your status? Well, I'm one of the children of God. I'm son of God. Oh, really? That's, that's how we say it. That's maybe even how we respond to it. But in reality, the writer here in 1 John is saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. I mean, man, he expressed his love in such a way that he sent his only begotten son to die on us, die for us on Calvary, to shed his precious blood, to have his his body broken on our behalf, a perfect sinless sacrifice. Man, Jesus Christ gave his all for us. And God loved us so much that he allowed his son to die in our stead. And he did all of that for us because of his great love for us. And because of that great love that was bestowed upon us, we, are, we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. I'll tell you, the moment we trust Christ, the moment we are born again, we need to be very mindful of the fact that we are in a battle. That the Christian life is a battle then. Notice again that the world no longer knows us because it didn't know Him. You will no longer fit in the world, nor will I fit in the world as we once did. We will no longer be recognizable, will not be known as fitting in the world any longer. We're his child now. That's a good thing. 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, turn there. You know the passage as we start to read it, you'll go, yeah, I've heard that before. I hope you have. And if you haven't, it's a good one to to take uh, note of. But again, because the world knows us not, because it, it knew him not, we're going to see that there's going to be some conflict Matter of fact, the the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his protege, says, listen, Timothy, I want you to know there's going to be some action in this thing called the Christian life. You're going to have to not only talk about it, you're going to have to live it. 
2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We know that Timothy, being the pastor there at Ephesus, he's receiving probably quite a bit of, of, uh, of, of um, opposition at times. We know that from 1 Timothy, and we recognize that there are those that weren't uh, actually paying attention to him, that were not listening to what he had to say, that were questioning his authority. And so Timothy was under the gun, and he was getting some opposition from the crowd, and and so the Apostle Paul writes him a note, tries to encourage his, his son in the faith and his fellow servant of the Lord. And he says to him, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I know you're going through a tough time. I understand that you're facing opposition. I realize that you're going to have to deal with problems and circumstances in the church. But I want you to know, Timothy, be thou therefore endure hardness. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier, the passage says. So according to this passage, the moment we trust and receive Christ, we are soldiers in the army of God and we are waging war with the world. That's what we basically find. Now again, it's not something that we go out armed, for bear, and we say, all right, you, you know, I see you, you're in the world. Are you a Christian? No. I'm in a fight with you. I'm in a battle with you. I'm a soldier, and soldiers fight. That's, that's not what we're talking about. But there is this battle that takes place, and, and it's a spiritual warfare. The world, as we understand it, is the system, is a system of belief. A system of practice that is embraced by Satan and his followers. That's what the world really is. When the Bible speaks of the world, it's talking about that system of belief and practice. Now, that means that we are at war with the philosophies and the ideology of the world system then. That means that the position taken by Satan and and those in the world is most likely not going to be the position taken by our God or us. That means that the foundation on which they stand and what they stand for will be distinctly different than what we do. That's what it means. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. These are very, very stern and very powerful statements. I mean, this, is, this is sobering. So the lives of worldly Christians are full of sin then. They're full of things that hinder. But those who wish to please God, as the Bible says here, they kind of disentangle themselves from the things which hinder in the Christian life. They don't want to be bound and they don't want to be tangled up in the things of the world. Uh, the story is told about a stagecoach company who was hiring a, I guess, a, a, a driver for their uh, stagecoach. And the particular stage ran through a very mountainous area. Well, the local office manager had advertised for a position, and of course, there were people that began to apply for the job, and they, uh, 
you know, they were interviewing and the boss asked each applicant that he interviewed, how close can you drive the team to the edge of the cliff as you round the mountain? Uh, that first fellow that he interviewed replied and he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've driven a long time and I'm skilled enough that, that uh, I can drive that coach within three feet of the edge of that cliff. Well, the boss uh, thanked him for his time and he called in the next applicant. In the course of the interview, the boss asked the next fella the same exact question. He replied that he could drive the team and coach within one foot of the edge of the cliff. He likewise was thanked for his time and, well, the next applicant was called in. And the boss asked this fellow the same exact question again. And he said, you know what? I'd drive the coach as far from the edge of the cliff as I possibly could. He got the job. He got the job. You say, really? Absolutely. And I think that the story clearly illustrates the biblical principle of separation then. I mean, this is the great... That's, it, there is so much wisdom in steering away from the edge. That's a very wise thing to do. Get as far away from the edge as you possibly can. Why would you tempt disaster? See, no matter how skilled we believe ourselves to be, no matter how spiritual we consider ourselves, true safety is only afforded us when we keep a safe distance from the edge. I'm always a, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed how many people believe they can flirt with sin and it won't burn them or hurt them. I'm amazed. Well, I can read that stuff, and I, I, it doesn't bother me. I can watch that stuff. It doesn't affect me. I can listen to that stuff, and it doesn't have... I, I'm, I'm able to overcome it. I'm a mature enough believer. I've been around long enough that it doesn't affect me the way it does a new babe in Christ. What you're saying is you like to ride on the edge. I've got liberty in Christ. Oh, yes, you do. But he also says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. You need to start asking, friend. Because wisdom would say, stay as far away from the edge as you possibly can. Why in the world would you tempt fate? It's ridiculous. And you know what? That's equally true concerning our children. Why in the world do we allow our children the opportunity to, to tempt destruction, to get to the edge we're, you, you, you don't want to know why, listen, no, no kid's perfect, all right? It's just the life. I don't care if they're a preacher kid, I don't care if they're your kid, doesn't matter. But if you tell them that this is as far as they're allowed to go, to this spot right here, not to there, to here. When they step over here, they're still safe. If they even step over here, they're safe. Do you know what's happening in most Christian homes today? We're allowing our kids to walk right on the edge. We wonder why our girls are coming up pregnant all the time. We wonder why our boys are falling out into sin. We wonder why they, they're, they're getting messed up with all of these stupid video games and different things that are going on. And they're messing with people on the internet that we didn't even know who they were. And we don't understand any of that stuff. 
And we're like, I, he's a good kid. He's a good kid. I trusted him. Well, you shouldn't have trusted him on the edge because you shouldn't even trust yourself on the edge. There's not a believer in the world that can look at certain things and it be productive for them. Well, I can handle it. Whatever. I'm just saying, so many times we set ourselves up. Now, listen, I know that there's some naysayer in the crowd. There's somebody probably saying, well, yeah, what you're saying is that my kid went off the deep end. It's all my fault. That's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you this. If you are guilty of allowing your children to walk the edge, then, friend, you will have to take some responsibility when they fall. You can only protect them so much, though. I get that. But at least protect them. At least put checks and balances in place. At least put some stop checks in there. Put something in place where there's some safety nets along the way, where they're not already walking this line. Listen, balanced beams are called balanced beams for a reason. People fall off them all the time. Don't put your child on a balance beam. Don't you put your spiritual life on a balance beam. Get on some sure footing, man. I mean, get some sure ground and make sure you got some, some, some room to move. So that if you do take a step to the left or right, you don't fall flat on your face. And you know, if we're going to please God, then we must separate ourselves from all sinful and doubtful things. There's a great passage, and I don't have time to get into it. But I think we have read that a few times in our lessons and messages when it talks about getting rid of the weights and those things which so easily beset us. Well, don't allow yourself to get caught up in some of the stuff that's going on. I tell you what, the Bible teaches us that we ought to make pleasing him our greatest ambition. What's your greatest ambition tonight? What is your greatest ambition? I I harp on this all the time because I do the singles, right? But I'm fearful sometimes that the greatest ambition of a single is to be married. I'm fearful sometimes that the greatest ambition of a teenager is to get their license. I'm just fearful that the greatest ambition of an adult is to get a great career. Now listen, in and of themselves, those things are not wrong, nor are they bad. But for us as believers, I don't care if you're a preacher or if you're just... Newly saved, God's desire for your life and mine is that we make it our ambition to please Him. There is no room there. There's no wiggle room to say, well, I'm not there yet, so He understands. No, He paid a price. He bought us with a price. And so we owe Him our very best. I uh, want to continue discussing this in the future, but secrets of successful living, making it our ambition to please Him. Are you doing your human best to please Him? Are you making it your ambition to please Him? And you know what? The question has to be asked of me too. Am I? You know what? Only you can answer that question. And only I can answer it. But may we be willing to at least face the question and answer it in our own hearts instead of dismissing it. Well, that's stupid. I've been there, done that a million times. I'm done with that. No, you need to really consider that question 
and so do I, it's important that we do if we want true success in our Christian lives. Father, we come to you. We thank you.